For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, some optimism about food security and how we can feed the future. Paying tribute to the film legacy of Pete Kozacic and raising awareness about aphasia. Musician and composer Larry Redhouse lets the music flow. And the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater celebrates the holiday season on stage. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. When people talk about the expanding global population and food security, the outlook can often seem grim. Next, a story from Spotlight producer Leah Britton that lets some locally-based food experts share their optimism about ways that we can work together to feed the future. By 2050, experts predict that the Earth's population will grow to about 10 billion. That's 2.2 billion more mouths to feed and 2.2 billion more bodies to fuel. With hunger already a prevalent issue in communities around the globe, It's hard to imagine that feeding another couple billion people will be an easy feat. However, according to a few food experts, it's not only possible, but can be made even easier with some changes to our current food habits. These experts have helped me understand how we, the people of today, can secure a bountiful future for the people of tomorrow. To get a better understanding of the state of today's food system, I spoke to Pete McGraw, the coordinator of the University of Arizona's Campus Pantry. The Campus Pantry is a service that works to fight food insecurity within the campus community. We discuss the food-related challenges communities are currently facing and what they mean for generations to come. When we help people get enough to eat, they're able to then, you know, work, study, do what they need to do academically, personally, and accomplish their goals. And then they're able to kind of take care of themselves and set themselves and their families, those who come after them, up with what they need. So that's our biggest thing is trying to kind of break the cycle of, food insecurity so that folks are able to propel themselves forward and set their families up for success for years to come. Obviously, with more people comes more competition for resources. And, you know, we've seen things get more expensive, right? With inflation, the cost of groceries has gone up. And then here on campus, that's an added challenge for folks because transportation factors into that safety of the surrounding neighborhood um, and all those things with time, right? A lot of students work uh, in addition to going to class or, you know, they have family obligations as well. So finding time once or a few times a week to get to the grocery store is not easy. So that's where we try to step in and provide supplemental groceries that folks can you know, use and rely on a couple times a week to kind of fill whatever gaps they may be experiencing. And we feel that, you know, that will be the case for generations, centuries, you know, thousands of years to come because humans are just going to get busier. There's always more to do. There's always work that's going to be done. And, you know, we've seen people get busier and busier as the years have gone on. Even since I've been in college, the students nowadays have much more on their plates than I did even 10, 12 years ago. According to the World Food Program, over 333 million people around the world are facing acute levels of food insecurity in 2023. That's nearly 200 million more people fighting hunger than prior to COVID-19. With such numbers, I look to learn more about how our dwindling resources could ever keep up with the growing demand. Dr. Michael Katutua Johnson is a specialist also from the University of Arizona. He focuses on food conservation and indigenous food systems and has an extensive repertoire when it comes to discussing food sustainability. He says biodiversity will play a major role in feeding our future neighbors. 
Well, I think the challenges are is that we're still focused on about six or seven major crops in the globe. We're trying to grow those out globally. Like we have corn, um, sorghum, um, and other crops to me which aren't very climate compatible in some regions of the globe. And so we're losing a lot of biodiversity. In fact, uh, one of the startling numbers is, is that, you know, 80% now of global biodiversity is controlled basically by uh, 5% of the population which all happen to be indigenous people. And so uh, as we start to lose more and more biodiversity, we run the risk of, of having those foods and, and, and having no support whatsoever for those six major crops. But a lot of these biodiverse crops are very place-based. And so when you take a corn, for example, and you take it to Africa where it's not commonly grown, you wind up ripping up the soil, you wind up losing your soil, and you wind up having to add all these supplements like nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, things like that, to try to keep these, these crops sustainable. And so I think the thing that people always miss, it's not so much that we can't feed a billion people. We can, we can supply enough grain and everything here in the United States. Our biggest problem is the distribution mechanisms. We don't have adequate distribution mechanisms. People saw what happened here during COVID, how badly that was disrupted. Now, if you put that on a global scale, uh, it's still pretty much the same. By working to preserve biodiversity today, we can help maintain a multitude of crops to feed people living in various climates around the world. This goes hand in hand with the importance of understanding what crops and wildlife are native to your area. Its Kashita Refugee Network is a nonprofit based in Tucson. They work to strengthen the local food system through education, preservation, and farming. Programs manager Kathy Lowling says that opting for crops native to your area can have benefits that transcend today's food system and help future generations in their fight against climate change. The more we can trend towards the natives, you know, they'll exist anyway, you know, without seeds, without planting, without nurturing, without additional water, right? Right. But also just harvesting or, you know, using local goods. If you look at the footprint of what it takes to bring the food to market, if it's local, it, there, it's just automatically something of a lower footprint because it's from here. Right. So there's farms, you know, within 10 miles of downtown that can produce food, don't need extensive packaging, shipping, uh, you know, the trucks. They doesn't need as much to get to market. In fact, some of the places have a market right on the farm. Reducing uh, the amount of greenhouse gases we're producing is critical because it's contributing to the global warming, which is making us less able to farm as many things here. In addition to leaving behind crops that naturally have the ability to flourish in your area, we can help future generations thrive by passing on the knowledge of what those crops are and how they can be used to feed the community. Who knows, with a little help, prickly pear jam could be all the rage in a couple of decades. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Leah Britton. If you're a fan of movies including Inner Space, RoboCop, Starship Troopers, Willow, or James and the Giant Peach, among dozens of others, then you've enjoyed the work of award-winning special effects artist and cinematographer Peter Kozacik. The brother of longtime Tucson City Council member Steve Kozacik, Peter enjoyed a long and successful career in movie making, but it was cut short by his passing earlier this year. A factor that contributed to his death and loss of livelihood was a condition called primary progressive aphasia. This Sunday at The Loft, there is a benefit screening of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Peter Kozacik's work on that film was nominated for an Academy Award.
The benefit is to raise money for the local support group Friends of Aphasia. Here to tell us more is Steve Kozacic and Dr. Fabi Hirsch-Cruz. Well, first of all, I'm really proud of what he achieved and the fact that he's an example of a guy who literally followed his childhood dream and, and lived it out for his entire life. Uh, he made a lot of sacrifices, uh, started out in Tucson, um, working for some of the uh, smaller TV stations, rolling three-quarter inch tape for what we used to be KZAZ and doing lots of the uh, small animation things for local local businesses. At one point, they made the decision that if you want to be successful in the industry, you got to be where the jobs are. And so he uh, uh, quit a job teaching and lifted uh, lifted himself up and moved over to L.A. You know, I just mentioned to somebody uh, just as recently as last evening, wouldn't it be cool if uh, we could all kind of live with a legacy of knowing that for years and years uh, our work is going to be making people smile and laugh and feel good? And that's, that's what uh, Pete will have achieved. So when you were boys together, how far apart in age were you and Pete? Two years. Did he have a lot of stop-motion activities going on in his bedroom? Was he making short films in the backyard, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's actually pretty funny that you mentioned that. Um, one of the Christmas gifts that uh, my mom uh, gave to him, oh my gosh, back in the uh, 60s, was a Super 8 movie camera. And he would set up um, platforms out in the back behind our apartment and build little sets. He would cut characters, uh, in this case King Kong, out of styrofoam, out of foam rubber, and put a wire in their arms and legs to make them move. Uh, he found an old purse one time that was uh, that had fur on it. That became King Kong's fur. I mean, he really, you know, he began this at the very rudimentary level. And as you mentioned, yes, our our bedroom was a little set that he made, and we lived by a creek, and he. Uh, uh, recruited some of the neighborhood kids to be uh, some of the live-action people to be running through the creek and running away from King Kong and all that. So he, uh, again, he began this as a as a young kid, and uh, it played out uh, to the point that he was ultimately nominated for an Oscar uh, for his role as special effects uh, coordinator and director of photography uh, for Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, he sadly uh, developed a disease uh, condition called aphasia, uh, which in his case was a progressive uh, degenerative disease. How do you recall your family responding to Pete's diagnosis, and how did you perhaps learn to uh, interact as his condition progressed? We had an event at the loft, I want to say five or six years ago, uh, where we showed Nightmare. And I had invited Pete from uh, California to come and, and watch the film and then do a Q&A with the audience afterwards. During that Q&A, he had a slideshow that he had put together of different scenes and the process by which they made the film going on the screen behind him. He had trouble with some of the answers to questions, and he would, instead of directly answering, would turn around and point to the screen and use that as his, as his prop. I had chalked that up at the time to being, well, he's really a behind-the-camera guy and isn't comfortable for, with crowds. As I look back on it, though, it's very clear that that was the beginning of the onset of his, uh, of his problem with aphasia. It affects your ability to understand the spoken and written word and also to speak and uh, articulate your own thoughts. It is really, really difficult on the families, uh, the caregivers, 
which far too often become the immediate family members who are carrying this load. Uh, our health care industry doesn't, uh, doesn't come near to uh, covering the costs of adequate uh, in-home health care. Putting people in institutions is not the answer. There are therapies, speech therapy and other kinds of therapies that people can work through to help regain some of what they're losing and they have lost. In a case such as Pete's, that's not possible, and so you simply watch them decline over years, and it's very, very sad. Eventually, it takes their life. I'm going to turn now to Dr. Fabi Hirsch-Cruz, who is the CEO and Director of Clinical Services for a local group called the Friends of Aphasia. And uh, Fabi, I'd like you to react to what Steve has told us and uh, tell us more about the condition that Pete was diagnosed with, primary progressive aphasia. Let's start first with the aphasia part. So aphasia is the loss, or at least partial loss, of the ability to use words to communicate. And we usually think of that just from the perspective of speaking. But we also have to understand when other people are speaking, and we read and write using words to communicate that way, and aphasia can impact all of those areas. Typically, aphasia is the result of a stroke but it can also be caused by a traumatic brain injury, an infection, a tumor. It's different for primary progressive aphasia. So that is caused by progressive deterioration of the brain, the language areas specifically of the brain. And so rather than a sudden onset of those language difficulties, there is a progressive difficulty in being able to communicate. And that can, again, be speaking, understanding, reading, writing. And those symptoms, those language symptoms, are the predominant thing impacting somebody's life initially. But then as the rest of the brain begins to deteriorate, that then changes over to impacts on things that we consider more with dementia. So memory, being unable to care for yourself, and it can progress to impacting all areas of life and, and function. When he was nominated for the, for the Oscar, they put him on the uh, Oscar committee. And so for years, he would sit and review movies that were being nominated or under consideration for nomination. As the aphasia progressed, he had to step away from that because he literally could not sit and watch and understand a movie any longer. This is a person who was producing movies, who no longer couldn't watch one on the screen and understand what was happening. So everything that Babby said is exactly right on, and it's a really accurate description of how, in Pete's case, the aphasia degenerated and eventually took his, his life systems. And so it's great that we've got uh, Fabi and her team uh, spreading the word and um, shining a light on the fact that we all need to be aware of this and be supportive of organizations such as Friends of Aphasia. Fabi, is your group at Friends of Aphasia excited about this screening? I know you've done this kind of benefit before, so what can you tell people to expect? We're very excited about this Sunday's movie event at the Loft Cinema. It's exciting to see The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's a fabulous show. (laughs) It's the right time of year. (laughs) And they just make it a terrific event. So there are props like glow sticks and sparklers and things that they ask us to to pull out of our prop bags throughout the show. We sing along with the songs of the movie. And they have a costume contest. So be sure to dress up. It's a wonderful, family-friendly event. And we're very 
very excited that it's being offered this year in support of our nonprofit Friends of Aphasia and the work that we're doing to raise awareness about aphasia and to provide services for people who desperately need it in our community. We have information about the screening on Sunday, December 17th at the Loft Cinema on the Spotlight page at azpm.org, as well as ways to connect with the Friends of Aphasia if you or someone you know needs support and resources to face this difficult condition. During Native American Heritage Month, composer and pianist Larry Redhouse brought his jazz trio to Cochise College, where both the college and the county are named after a legendary leader of the Chiricahua Apache tribe. Summer Hom spoke to Larry Redhouse before his performance, and she brings us this story. Music has a way of translating feelings and life experiences into sound. It often runs in the blood, as a language spoken not just among family, but to the greater community to convey what cannot be described in words. Both are true for Larry Redhouse a Native American and Filipino pianist and composer who has taken inspiration from his heritage and married it with jazz. I I was born in Monterey and uh, my dad worked at Fort Ord, the army base that used to be open there. And he moved back and forth from California to Arizona. He worked at Fort Huachuca also. Red House is a member of the Navajo Nation. He says his heritage inspires his music in that. There's a groundedness about it. And uh, I'm an urban Indian. And so, uh, but I, it came through my dad, his example of living, which was uh, um, just grounded. He wasn't into material things. He, he was, and, and spirituality showed through in, in his uh, living example. And, uh, you know, he was from Tisnaspas, which is northern Arizona. And um, his father was a medicine man. Um, my clan on my grandmother's side, it is Bitani Folded Arm Clan. My uh, grandfather's is Kinlachini Red House Clan. I'm international. Dad, my father, was World War II veteran. He met mom in the Philippines, World War II. So I'm uh, Chinese and Spanish and Navajo. And, and on my mom's side, there's also East Indian blood. So you think about all the music and food and everything else that's involved with that. You know, we're just more accepting. And, and uh, I think the Filipino uh, culture where women are very strong and big families, my dad's uh, culture, the Navajo culture, is made traditionally matriarchal, you know, so I think he felt right at home. Red House says he was inspired to merge the two genres of Native American flute with jazz piano through playing at resorts. I've been playing a lot of uh, solo flute at different uh, resorts 
Ritz-Carlton, Hilton, El Conquistador, Marriott, Star Pass. And um, guests love that relaxation sound. Uh, so I, I decided to, to use my skills on keyboard to, to fit that in. When it comes to his inspiration for songs, Red House says it comes from artists he listened to growing up, like Miles Davis, but also from his siblings in a family of musicians. You know, I have some drummer, some sax player, one that plays, used to play tenor sax, and one that plays Latin percussion, congas, and, and so, and um, so it all kind of fit in. And being from uh, Monterey, with the Monterey Fairgrounds there, there was the Monterey Jazz Festival. Right? I was able to see Miles Davis growing up, uh, you know, in, when I was in uh, junior high. In his latest album that was released in 2019, The Great Mystery, Red House says it's about the creator. That's a phrase that's used by a lot of tribes, and it's, it's uh, describing uh, the creator, that who knows all about this one, that this one is a mystery, everything is, you know, the universe. And so, and I, I, th- I still think now, even our consciousness is a mystery, so if we think about it really. We don't know what it is, but we use it every moment. And yet, we are made of what stars are made of. You know, we're surrounded by space that has no end. <laughs> Red House says he's performed at Cochise College at the Sierra Vista campus for nearly two decades, along with his father. He would sing and drum. He loved to do uh, Native American singing. And so we would dance. We had the eagle dance, the hoop dance, the war dance, the uh, circle dance, which is a two-step friendship dance and uh, those kind of things And every year. And uh, back in third grade, uh, we lived in Sierra Vista. Also lived in Bisbee, so kind of have roots here. He says his spirituality infuses itself into his music through emotions, like in his original song, Spirit Progression, performed live by Red House and his jazz trio in Cochise College's Douglas campus last month. says most of his titles are spiritually oriented. It has to do with uh, some of my challenges in life. I call them, uh, I was on detours in life, and, and one of them was substance abuse. And so um, I find that uh, what I was healed by is uh, spirituality. Certain emotions gel into ideas, and then somehow they work their sel- themselves out on piano or melody, you know, so, and then from there, this, it just grows. Cochise County is named after Cochise, who led the Chiricahua Apache tribe. That tribe has since been displaced and now resides between New Mexico and Oklahoma. Red House says there's power in bringing Native American music back to Cochise County and to local college students. Yeah, there's a power in it, and, and I always encourage people that want to understand that to actually go to a Native American gathering and listen to the singing and the drumming. And what the drumming represents is the heartbeat. And, and so, uh, and the singing is, is not trained singing. Of course they practice and things like that, but it's just uh, very human uh, 
from the heart. And it's, it's something that is completely connected to Mother Earth. Larry Redhouse has four self-produced albums, Naomi's Dance, Live at Westward Look, Spirit Progression, and The Great Mystery. He is also featured in the album titled Urban Indian by the Redhouse Family Jazz Band, which was produced by Canyon Records. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Summer Hall. The classic O. Henry short story, The Gift of the Magi, is a surprising tale about the true meaning of giving and love during the holidays. It's being performed on Saturday at Tucson's Scoundrel and Scamp Theater. It's the second in a series of innovative stage productions they're calling The Late Night Radio Hour, and it's not the only seasonal story that Scoundrel and Scamp will be sharing. I asked three members of their team to tell us more. My name is Betsy Lubiner, and I am the Director of Education at The Scoundrel and Scamp. My name is Samantha Severson, and I am the producer of The Late Night Radio Hour. My name is Zach Austin, and I'm the lead educator at Scoundrel and Scamp. What does being the educator for a theater that's presenting so many different kinds of productions throughout a year, what does that entail? That looks like me going around uh, to some of the schools that we have partnerships with around Tucson. I teach high school. I teach at a couple of middle schools. We also have some of our own in-house classes at Scoundrel and Scamp. So we teach all the way from eight-year-olds all the way up to 18. (laughs) Um, And so we get a chance to explore all different kinds of theater. We just put on a series of 10-minute plays with my high school and middle schoolers. Um, and then we did some devised work with our little babies, and it was lots of fun. What does devised work mean? Uh, that means that those kids wrote it themselves, they created it themselves, uh, and I just helped kind of say, hey, maybe you should stand on that side of the stage, and maybe you should come in from that side of the stage. But other than that, it was all their work that we got to uh, hold and put up for parents to see, which was really, really fun. I think people who have not heard of the theater would enjoy knowing what your mission statement is. The Scoundrel and Scamp is really focused on two elements of what we see as the same mission. We have an artistic track where we focus on putting on stage stories from historically underrepresented communities, from new voices, and expanding what we all know and love about the theater. And then alongside that, in our educational programming, we work really hard to cultivate both the next generation of theater artists and the next generation of theater goers. And we do that through our classes, both in-house and in partnership with schools, as well as our in-house school matinees and our school touring program opening act. But you're also not afraid to put on plays that are designed for older adult audiences. Absolutely. We love all ages in our theater and our plays are everything from 
things that will appeal to the whole family and be great for very young audiences, as well as something like our upcoming Book of Will. And that's a Lauren Gunderson play that we are recommending for older audiences, 14 and up, because we're looking at the bard and his legacy through the sometimes complicated and messy aftermath of putting his plays together into a single book. I'm lucky enough that I grew up in the generation where we would have field trips to the local theaters and see productions of The Wizard of Oz or The Sound of Music or Unsinkable Molly Brown. For me, hearing the thump of the actors walking on a stage creates a magic. I want to hear that hollow stage resonate with those footsteps. Um, So it does point out that the generation growing up today, the vast majority of their entertainment is coming off a screen and they don't know the thump of the stage. Um, So uh, how did that become such an important goal for Scoundrel and Scamp? I think that we leaned into it primarily from a place where we feel that the arts and theater in particular is a place where everyone should be loved and celebrated. And to see yourself loved and celebrated on stage in our productions means that you know you belong in theater too. Your story belongs in the theater, on the stage, being seen by others. And when you feel that warmth and that welcome, then I think the thump of the footstep on the stage also (laughs) can be the thump of your heart, knowing that you're here, you belong, and we want you here today and many years from now down the road, whether you're in a seat or on stage. Everyone has a part to play. Precisely. You know, I'm not that old, but things have changed even since from when I was in high school. Uh, TikTok has really taken off and the attention span has gone from a lot to a little. And so these kids really love um, short form comedy, short form skits. They love to create little things, but then they have a hard time with like, well, how do I end it? Well, how do I, you know, get into this? And so it's about um, getting in there and, and asking them the harder questions What does that mean? Where does that come from? How do we elaborate on this to go from a short form piece to a five minute piece to a 10 minute piece? And the imagination is so totally there and kids just have it. I love to be involved with them whenever they are not so afraid of what their peers might think or what the audiences might think. But whenever you have that unfiltered, unadulterated, just content that's coming out of their brain, They have some genius ideas. (laughs) Um, What are some of your reflections on what we've been talking about, Samantha? What's something you'd like to say about what you find to be the magic of live theater? Well, so I grew up in live theater. I started as young as, I think, eight years old. And for the longest time, all I can really remember is just how fun it's it is to just be on stage and to watch your friends on stage and to just see these huge characters come to life from people that you go to school with or people that you work with on a regular basis and suddenly there's a completely different person it's one of my favorite things about live theater is really getting to watch this single person that you know as them become this larger than life character in so many different ways. 
Well, we're in the holiday season now, and this weekend there's still some opportunities for people to come and sample some of this magic we're talking about in a couple of different ways. So, Betsy, will you begin, please, by explaining what's going on this weekend? Certainly. We have two holiday shows at The Scoundrel and Scamp this weekend. We have Red Herring Puppets, The Legend of La Bifana, and this story takes the Italian folklore of La Bifana, who is a Santa Claus-like gift-giving figure, and brings her story to life through a number of different puppets in different styles. And then we also have the next installment of our late-night radio hour, The Gift of the Magi. And that is a short story that in this case has been adapted for the stage in the style of a radio play. So, Samantha, explain your inspiration as the producer, and um, I, I believe you're the originator of this series. Yes. So I've always loved radio plays and um, storytelling. My father is a storyteller. It's one of those beautiful things that I think really encapsulates a lot of what theater does, but in a smaller scale. And it's something that I think connects to a different type of person. So with the late night radio hour, I have always loved the War of the Worlds, uh, which was our first installment back in October. And it's one of my favorite radio plays of all time. And I really wanted to produce and direct it. And I didn't really have a way to just do it on my own. And so I came to Brian and Betsy and everyone at the Scoundrel and Scamp, and they were completely on board with me producing this new series of late night radio plays. And it's just been so much fun because it's a very short period of rehearsal time and then one or two performances and then it's done and you move on to the next one. Gift of the Magi is such a beautiful story that I'm so excited to share it with everyone. Working as a director on Gift of the Magi Mm -hmm. for this late night radio hour project, what were some things that really inspired you? Just this idea of people around a table reading, speaking into a mic, and enjoying each other's company and the work itself. Um, And it it breathes an air of lightheartedness into the room where mistakes happen, but don't let it dwell. Um, Yeah, (laughs) that's that's what I got. (laughs) Okay, so when is the performance this weekend? So it's going to be Saturday night, the 16th at 10 p.m. at the Scoundrel and Scamp. La Bifana is on Friday evening, the 15th at 7 p.m. And then on Saturday and Sunday, the 16th and 17th, both at 4 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. For the last 70 episodes of this show, assistant producer Leah Britton has played a very important part. Now, as the recipient of the prestigious Don Bowles Scholarship, Leah is moving to Phoenix to report on events at the state capitol. Many besides myself will miss her boundless energy, her patience, and all-around positive vibes in the AZPM newsroom. I wish her the best as her career in journalism takes flight. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.